I'm Dave Monaco, the Alan Meyer Family Head of School at Parish Episcopal School. Welcome to the From My Angle podcast. I'm excited to launch this third season of From My Angle, a podcast in which we explore innovation and education through the lens of members of the parish community and experts in and outside the field of education. Welcome back. I hope you've had a terrific summer, a restorative one, and are excited for the new school year. Each year, I center my writing, speaking, and podcast episodes around a theme, having filtered discussions in last year's season of From My Angle through the topic of perspective, I'm looking forward this year to talking about belonging. Finding one's fit in the complex global society, as we refer to today's world in Parish's mission statement, is no easy task. In fact, it is a lifelong quest. As individuals, we have an innate desire and a need to connect, to find communities big and small where we realize protection and nourishment. In the healthiest communities, we find our talents and gifts are identified, honored, cultivated, and applied. And in return, we derive tremendous fulfillment by doing our part to help that group thrive. As parents and educators, of course, we are among the most important influences on our children and students as they form a healthy self-concept and seek out strong, sustaining networks of connection. So, to get this podcast series started for the year, I sought someone with both a deep professional expertise in how children form their identities and a broad familiarity with independent school communities like Parish, where such students ultimately seek belonging. Dr. Rob Evans has spent four decades providing counsel to students, families, and independent schools. A clinical and organizational psychologist Outside of Boston, Dr. Evans is the author of two books that have had a sustaining influence on me, The Human Side of School Change and Family Matters. Dr. Evans has been a workshop leader, consultant, and guest speaker at over 1,700 independent schools since the late 1980s. In this episode, Dr. Evans and I set the table on the belonging theme that we will dig into much more deeply this year, including as we discussed what it means to belong, how self-identity forms, and what conditions promote its healthy development, the role parents and schools can play in fostering it, and how one identifies the communities he or she ultimately chooses to belong to. I think you will enjoy this opening podcast for Season 3 of From My Angle. Thanks for coming back around to listen. smorgasbord, I guess you could say, of sort of the dynamics and challenges and uh, successes of uh, the people trying to run schools and teaching them and make them flourish. So you're trying to slow down after four decades, Dr. Robert Evans, but you have been at 1,700 schools and they seem to still be calling on you to come share your, to come share your wisdom. So uh, qu- quite, an impressive, uh, quite an impressive history and, and continuing on uh, as you work with uh, schools and young people across the, the country. So um, I'm talking this year in my community about this theme of belonging, and it uh, is just getting started. I gave an opening faculty address yesterday on it, and we'll be uh, giving uh, chapel homilies to our students and writing about it and, and really uh, focusing my podcasts around it. So 
in the simplest terms, I think, uh, you know, belonging to me is a fit or a match between the values and interests of an individual who connects to a group of two or more people, could be a church or a school or a circle of friends. And this uh, sense of connection or belonging feels good. Like we crave it as humans. Maslow and others have told us uh, this. And uh, when I feel I belong, I feel honored and I feel valued for who I am as my authentic self. And there's this uh, sort of reciprocity. The group pours into me. I grow as an individual. I pour my gifts and my strengths into the, into the group. And together, uh, they, uh, we march forward to a higher, a higher purpose. I'm wondering, as a clinical psychologist, what I've missed about what it means for humans to belong in a community. Well, I, I, uh, I, I don't know, but I tend to think of it at a more, uh, not just at the level you're describing, Dave, but at one that I would guess I would think of as closer to biological. Mm. So if you were to read, for example, the wonderful books by Franz de Waal, who's a primate specialist um, uh, in Atlanta and has written terrific books about chimpanzees and um, so on and, and all the things we share in common. And one of the things he constantly points out is that every uh, one of the higher primates, including us, um, has uh, just sort of a, a built-in social connector bias. It's not his word, it's sort of my word. But that uh, belonging and connecting and stuff like that is not something we choose to do, uh, although you can choose to join a church or whatever, but mm -hmm. the need to belong isn't actually, in my view, uh, something we decide I do or I don't. Mm -hmm. It's something that comes in the biology. Huh. Because we're fundamentally, profoundly, deeply social animals, and about the worst torture you can inflict on anyone is solitary confinement. Um, and so um, the, the impulse to connect is, is there from the get-go. And the question only really in a way is, well, so where do we connect? And that can depend on a ton of things, including our higher cognitive processes, uh, spiritual beliefs and stuff like that. Um, and, but an awful lot of it is stuff that just happens naturally and that we, uh, we can't do without. So I tend to think of the belonging, myself anyway, more in terms of um, that and, and, and to think about what it's like for people who, for one reason or another, aren't able to connect or to belong, um, or when things really somehow go badly and then the, the, the community connection is broken for a person or something like that. Um, and these are these are among the most difficult things that can happen to any individual. So um, I think there is all the reciprocity that you were talking about. Um, but, but for me, the, the root of it is that we, we are just born to connect. Yeah, that's really fascinating. So I see it much more, I have seen it much more around the notion of a volition, an act of choice, right? Yes. And, and so you, you scan the landscape and you're looking for uh, those places where you have affinity and then you kind of plug into them. I definitely hear you talking about it actually goes uh, really much more instinctual and biologically back to well, the desire you're, to survive. You're looking, you, you may be looking and considering, but what you can't, what most people can't do is not have something. So, the you know, it, 
it's not like we would just be sort of in splendid isolation and then kind of inspect the landscape. What would be the right religious house of worship for me? What would be the right school? What would be the right place to live? Um, I mean, we are always in, um, in touch with and reacting to other people. And, you know, there are exceptions to everything, but um, it isn't, I think, either or, it's both. But the root of what's going to drive you to be looking for those choices is that, in fact, we, um, we need to be connected. And we feel completely differently when we are connected um, than when we're not. And one of the hardest things for people is if they don't find the place to connect or something goes wrong once they have, then um, it's profoundly unsettling, you know. Um, and when you are uh, welded in, connected into a, a group that is truly meaningful and where there's a rich back and forth that you began describing, then there's a whole different sense of security um, that, you know, makes life vastly better. No question. And so, uh, as all independent schools do, parish seeks to be a place where people come and feel communally connected and deeply connected, yeah. not just not just superficially. So, and and I think this is the the pathways that we want to look and explore. We've got a uh, 1,155 students over you know two campuses and 250 employees. Our students are 34 percent diverse. They come from 80 zip codes. Right there's uh, though we're an Episcopal school that has a daily chapel, there are 20 different religious faiths uh, represented in our student population. So right, this, this idea of uh, when, I, when I come uh, to a community like Parish, um, am I bringing my full self or, or, or do I have to uh, uh, mute some of who I am to, to find my place there? Even though I've come and chosen you is a compelling question. Uh, this idea of a rich array of programming here, which ones does a child plug into as he grows through our program? Is it the sports programs or the drama programs, the robotics programs? So for me, it raises kind of a chicken and the egg question, which is, you know, what kind of comes first for a, a young person who's uh, seeking places to fit, even once they've come to a community like ours? Is it a clear sense of self first that precedes then choosing the right micro communities in our community to engage in? Or is it something that children have to uh, sort of explore uh, in order to figure out where they're, uh, to clarify their sense of self and to determine their identity? Well, I think most kids don't get to make too many choices about stuff like that, to be mm -hmm. honest, because their parents pick which school they're going to. Right. So the kids who come to parish, you know, come to parish largely because their parents want them to be there. Mm -hmm. And kids will uh, then uh, make links to, in fact, we all will, to uh, any group of people uh, we are, in a sense, sent to or, you know, joined up with in, in some way. Um, but one of the challenges uh, that I think is implicit in what you were just outlining is, is um, that um, it, it isn't like first we get a sense of self and then we join a community or the other way around that we join a community and then we get a sense of self. It's interactive all the way because no person is ever able to define him or herself um, uh, completely alone rather than being in connection. So any, any parents who have had uh, their own children or any parents who have adopted young, very, very young babies will know that kids are born with temperaments. 
Some are shyer, some are bolder, some are noisier, some are quieter. Those tendencies actually turn out to be lifelong. They don't, they don't change at the age of eight or 10 or 12 or whatever. Um, and a child's going to take those with her or him wherever she or he goes. But the, the values the child comes to have, the things the child comes to believe, etc., are all going to be the result of interactions first at home and then in the broader places where the child is. And when you get to these days to um, a school and to an independent school like, like Paris that you, where you've just described it, one of the chronic sort of challenges or dilemmas is that in order to be a community, we have to have enough commonality, which means there are limits to individuality. And on the other hand, in order for people to flourish with their own identities, they need the chance to make those exploratory findings that you were outlining. And so we have, a, in a way, a creative tension that's always at play, because you can't have a community without limits, without certain minimum non-negotiables that we all subscribe to, no matter what else we think. And yet, if we only have that, then we are all kind of homogenous, but we don't have any you know, of the individuality we want. And so these days, most schools um, are trying to maximize individual opportunity, but also, at least in my view, need some real clarity about the kind of essential building blocks of belonging here. Our community here is familiar that we had last year a board-approved uh, task force, uh, the Inclusive Community Task Force, which uh, prepared and um, sent out a report uh, that I've shared with our parent body here as the year begins called We Are Parish, Creating a Culture of Belonging. And to your very point of this creative tension, uh, we, we made a set of recommendations uh, really coming from um, a, a point of aspiration for our community. And these, mm -hmm. five, these five points of aspiration touch very much on what you just were talking about. The first says, you know, at, at Parish Episcopal School, when we are at our best self, you know, students can come here and be their authentic self, right? Well, we can't have 1,150 kids, we know, running around being their authentic selves, nor can right. we have 250 employees running around being their fully authentic selves. But right. we do want students to feel like who they are can be expressed and honored within the construct of the values that also keep us binded. And then there's another uh, of these aspirations which says, you know, we will have uh, persist through potential discomfort associated with discussions of identity and e equity and justice. And this is really to your point of, you know, there are going to be uh, tensions that uh, when it comes to uh, who I am as uh, a person of identity and authentic self, and as I'm discovering who I'm becoming, uh, we're gonna butt up sometimes against uh, the the values that we have all bought into to come to a place uh, like parish, which is communal. So I think it's uh, interesting that you sort of foreshadowed those. When you talk though, uh, kind of maybe through the lens of uh, a, to a teacher or a parent, what are some of the necessary conditions or inputs that have to be in place or occur for a young person to develop a healthy self-identity on which they can build? Because our identities never end, like we're always in processes of becoming who we are, but what are some of the conditions uh, for, for young people, uh, those preschool, you know, you worked with pre preschool kids in your earliest days, all the way up through the gnarly adolescents in high school, like what are some of those conditions and inputs that help them form a healthy self-identity? Well, there's some, you know, 
ironies and paradoxes through all of this stuff, Dave. Um, so, for for example, um, it turns out that um, if kids are going to sort of grow up in at least in our culture, um, sort of successfully, there are some basic building blocks that the research would tell you are crucial, and you can oversimplify these in a way that's that's not dishonest, but simplifies it. Uh, kids actually um, stand a very good chance of turning out well um, if they have a sufficient amount of nurture as they grow up, if they have a sufficient amount of structure, mm-hmm. which is limits about what goes and what doesn't go, and if they have a sufficient amount of what I call latitude, mm-hmm. which means the, the freedom to learn from experience including from the experience of disappointments, frustrations, things that don't work out well, etc. And, um, you know, uh, this is the stuff of textbook after textbook, all this. But the short form is that, especially when they're young, but actually all the way through life, kids um, need uh, to be able to count on a reliable source of nurture and comfort uh, and love that comes kind of unquestioningly and is just there. We associated early with mothering and nursing and stuff like that, but mm-hmm. we need it all the way through life. Kids, interestingly, if they're going to have a strong sense of self and a good ability to manage themselves in different settings, need to also grow up in a home and ideally then a school community, which has some clear limits, not like a list of 85 rules, but here are some things we always do and some things we don't do because in the absence of that kids have a very hard time knowing how to situate themselves and no practice putting themselves in anyone else's shoes which is crucial to the capacity to relate to another individual or to a community mm-hmm. finally if they that they need a chance to actually live with the consequences of sort of normal things that happen in life And what they don't need is, uh, unfortunately, what we see too much of now, which is parents asking, essentially asking the school to prepare the path for my child. Yes. Is preparing my child for the path. Yeah, I have. I I was I was mentioning, you know, I have the notes scrawled in my front of your book, Family Matters from 2005. You were prescient because in here it talked about the what you called the quote. Uh, this is my pen, chicken scratch, the rising tide of anxiety, right? In good yep. folks, good parents, like people who are well-intentioned, right? Who just don't want to play the, the difficult card with their with their children. On page 85 of Family Matters, you, you know, you, you write that parents have offered an example. Um, if through structure, parents have offered an example of strong identity, consistently supporting, modeling, and enforcing certain standards of conduct, Teens have an easier time developing their own identity, and this is what I think is the really important part, even if it differs from the parents. Yes. Right? Right. So, if, you know, if, you're, if your parents have some non-negotiables, um, that you just, I mean, you know, that's all there is to it. In my family, here's a simple, I grew up simple. Every Sunday after church, we went to see my father's mother, my grandmother. And most of the time, us kids didn't want to. I had to keep my scratchy woolen suit on that I'd worn to church. She wasn't that much fun to be with some of the time. But it was non-negotiable. You just did it. Right. And one of the things you learned was there's stuff you just have to do when you live with. Well, with our kids, I didn't make them go to their grandmothers. But there were other things I did make them do. 
And my mother um, and dad were pretty clear, well, just what we do. And, um, you know, you may be Democrats and raise a Republican or vice versa. But if what they see as they live with you growing up is a consistent commitment that's acted on, not just preached, then what they take with them is the capacity to do that with their children, even if it's a different commitment that they act on. So in your 20, I think you said 20 different religions and- Yes, here, yep, right? correct. So there will be lots of different values among those, but within each one, there may be pieces of consistent thing that their children see modeled by their parents and can take with them. And then maybe they tweak it. Maybe they reject it and they do something else. But what they have is the example of standing for something. Yeah, and in our school community, we would suggest that we are, um, a, you know, a, a, a school that's just added to middle and high school 15 years ago. So we have elements of, of, uh, of a startup in us and are very innovative programmatically. The fact that we go to Daily Chapel is the example of structure in our own yep. space yep. where not every ch child loves it. Believe me, after seventh grade, they feel like you did go into your grandmother's house, right? They, they're like, oh, we got to a chapel again today, right? But these are part of the, uh, the sort of ritualistic commitments we make as a community that, we would, that I would offer forth as that type of um, um, securing of our identity as an institution, right? So you gather together and actually these days when community is in short supply everywhere else and for so many families school is actually it yep um there are ways i think you could argue that it's more important to have those ritual gatherings together and one issue is what goes on when we're there but the other one is just that we gather correct and yeah the part of what we do is we are in communion together here this morning whatever and this is the kind of stuff <laughs> kids love to complain about and they're all going to remember vividly when they're alums. So if, if a child's been raised in this in this home of, of nurture, structure, and latitude, and, and then comes to school and begins to think about, wow, am I an actress or an athlete? Is that really the right social group for me to be in? Or is that group actually pulling me in places that aren't uh, really where I belong? They're, they're not true to what I, what I believe. How, did, how does that reciprocal process that you talked about of identity formation and belonging play out and how can we support teens who are just trying to figure out where they fit well uh gee that's that's a big question um i guess a quick answer for me would be that in most cases it's stuff we have relatively little control over that you have to rely really on the examples that are set by the adults mm. first and most importantly at home and second at school um but that kids end up doing an awful lot of things on their own um, you know, uh, so for, well, here's one for instance, uh, boys particularly are likely to form friendships based on shared common interests, a uh, particular uh, sport, uh, some kind of uh, tech uh, something or whatever. It's not that girls don't do this too, but boys are especially likely to. And it's very hard for adults to have much control over that. Parents exert control over it when they choose parish as a school because then they're selecting the kids who are going to be there. Right. But an awful lot of the kids will grapple with, but they sort of gravitate to places and usually sort of end up somewhere. Um, I, I'm not familiar with the, uh, it being something that we can pretty much orchestrate for them in a, you know, in a kind of what we can do is when kids have a hard time connecting with other kids or feel uh, we're often able to be to see if we can help them in some way. So, for example, a, a child who is inadvertently making herself uh, 
difficult to get along with because she's so selfish, say, I don't know. Well, we can help a kid like that learn to be less selfish and to start make some, making some connections. It's pretty hard for us to say, well, we're going to have connections with this group or that group. And I don't think identity is actually something we choose consciously. Hmm. I'm going to be an aviator who is a tough, take charge guy, uh, you know, with a military career. We can aspire to things. Um, but I think we often, you know, find our way. I mean, if you ask yourself, how did you get to be in education as opposed to, say, banking, what would you say? Uh, terrible in math, first of all. But secondly, <laughs> se- se- secondly, I'd say a combination of nurture and, and, and experience. You know, I came from a family of educators, so there was, just, yep. there was a bit of a familiarity with the space. And then yeah. as, as, I, as I moved forward through my, my early education experiences and up through college at Hamilton, I got uh, into places where I was working with youth and it felt yep. it felt natural right and so you yep. gravitated to that yeah i did too i had a couple of teachers i thought were magnetic and my school experience was terrifically important to me i went to a, an independent school in philadelphia for 12 years and i never thought twice about whether i wanted to be a teacher i ended up in psychology when i went back to grad school because i had found myself so interested in the kids in our school who our creative as i thought curriculum wasn't reaching and who were in big trouble but it's an allied field and, you know, I sort of gravitated to it. And I, I think it's often an accident uh, how we end up someplace. It's not an accident if we stay. Yep. And I think those of us who are at least the lucky ones stay in something which is terrifically rewarding to us. Uh, and I think most of your students are likely to be the same, to find themselves in a, ultimately in a career and in ideal circumstances that they would stay with because it's rewarding. I mean, not just that it makes money, that it's rewarding and fulfilling. So what, one author who I've spent a lot of time with in this last year who's up by you is Todd Rose up at, at Harvard. He's written End of Average and then most recently Dark Horse. And in, I, I know we'll be talking about these through the podcast uh, thread this year. But in Dark Horse, you know, he talks about these folks who followed uh, um, uh, gentler, less urgent pathways to find their fit as adults. And one piece of advice that he recommends that uh, resonates with me hearing you talk is this notion of act, then think. Don't think and then act. In other words, act and make conscious choices to explore and find uh, find exposure to experiences, which then help you figure out, right, where your strengths are best aligned and, and where they fit. And that's what I'm hearing you say is that, you know, parents and educators, we can do some things in terms of how we nurture and, and structure and provide latitude. But after that, we become guides as we become guides as the young people around us uh, really look around and try some things on and explore. And we should advocate for them to uh, to, to, to seek uh, different experiences to help uh, in this identity formation, this evolution of who they are and who they're becoming. Well, you know, there was a long, long, long decades ago, there was a, a, a famous psychologist at Harvard, Robert White, who wrote some wonderful books in, in, about child development. And in one of them, he said, you, you know, uh, you can help a tree to grow. You can water it. You can prune it a little. You can do that, you know, fertilize the soil. But you, the tree does the growing. Hmm. And I think he was making a specific analogy to children and that the child and the adolescent, they do the growing. And we can't. And I think there's actually a good case to be made that we have, we meaning people in psychology and elsewhere, 
have uh, unfortunately been telling parents too much for a long time now that if you do this and that and the other, you can make the kid turn out this way or that way or the other, and that there hasn't been nearly enough respect for the fact that we have limited control over that. And I know that we can be there to stand by them, to support, to guide, to suggest, to help out when there's trouble. But what we can't do is make them be this or that or the other and um, that there's a limit to our powers and that actually part of what really ends up in a strong sense of self is that I did this. I lived, I lived through it. I made a wrong choice. It turns out I didn't really like that. I decided that I love, I'd like this instead. The number of people I know who are doing happily in a career now, something that's very fulfilling, but for whom is not what they started out doing, and they discovered in the course that's excellent. That's not. I'm not. That's not for me. I'm not good at that. Yep. Whatever, and they ended up somewhere else. And there's no. I don't think there's any way that adults can do that work for kids. And to a degree, that's your co- that's your concept of latitude. I mean, that's yeah. th- that's uncomfortable for parents to sit back yeah. and Especially watch. These days. Absolutely, it, it was in 2005, right after you wrote Family Matters. Like it's been that way in this sort of recent parent generation. It's like to sit back and feel like we can't put our hands on the on the rudder, and and uh, ameliorate the anxiety and stress that an ill-fitting child yeah. in a classroom or in a social group or in a team is experiencing but you know what you're clearly saying is that thrashing and and wrestling with uh, that discomfort when a child emerges from it and they all will because we all do that when they emerge from it they're a stronger they're gonna have a stronger sense of self so i always say to parents when i'm speaking to them i always ask them to think about the most important lessons they have learned in their life they don't have to tell me just think about it. and uh ask them how they learn them and I always say uh, the odds are overwhelming that for all of us, those lessons, even the ones most useful, are something we learn in a context of loss or disappointment or frustration or even failure. And we might wish we could have done the learning without the loss and frustration and whatever, but that's not how life works. That's why English teachers make kids read poems and plays and novels, because that's what they're about, loss and learning. And what's going to distinguish every student at Parish is not whether these things eventually happen to them, but what they do when these things happen to them. And if their growing up were to insulate them from any of that, it would be smoother, but they wouldn't be prepared. And a lot of what schools, uh, many schools grapple with these days are that parents who are very uncertain about the future, for good reason. I mean, this is an uncertain time to be raising kids in terms of what future occupational opportunities are going to be and all sorts of stuff. But it's still true that the, you know, the kids are going to have to do some learning on their own. Yeah. And I think as we head through this year, you've given us a great kickoff to it with, with this theme of belonging. We're going to be looking over the podcast uh, year at, you know, uh, belonging around emotional and physical safety. We're going to be looking at belonging as a, as an active commitment to these shared values that you and I have uh, hinted at today. Uh, what is what does belonging mean when you come back home for our alums who are coming back to college from college to yeah. refit into families? We're going to look at belonging in the complex global society that our mission talks about. So your your point of sort of navigating the world of work. We're going to talk about 
uh, finding belonging in the age of technology when, you know, uh, what a, is, a, is a friend or a number of followers the commensurate with feeling connected and belonging. And so, you know, I'm looking forward to uh, continuing to explore a topic all the while when for us it's, at Parish, we're driven by trying to rethink the academic teaching delivery model to have kids feel uh, a sense of belonging manifested as engagement and learning. Right. Yep. Because, you know, yep. when, when you're when you're just sitting here sucking down content and information and just punching the clock, that's not really truly belonging. So, uh, you know, there there are lots of levels of, of this uh, of this conversation that we think will be rich this year. And thank you for, uh, you know, starting to get the dust stirring a little bit on this this uh, this morning with uh, your four decades of wisdom uh, over the course of work with independent schools. I really appreciate it. Oh, it's a pleasure, Dave. <laughs> Thanks so much. All right. Take care. Thank you for listening to this edition of the From My Angle podcast. Please share it with friends and colleagues in your network. In our next episode, we will continue to till the soil on the emerging theme of belonging. I will be joined by author and executive consultant Charles Vogel. Charles is the author of The Art of Community, Seven Principles for Belonging. He works with leaders in a wide range of sectors on managing change and building powerfully connective relationships. We'll see you next time on From My Angle.